Um, we at this conference are, if I understand it correctly, all people, or mostly people, who believe in free markets, a smaller state, and lower taxes, and less regulation, and that kind of thing. Which is fine, except that we have to admit that here in Sestri Levante, we are in a bit of a minority in most Western countries. We are, in fact, a tiny minority in most Western countries. And most people are perfectly happy with the size of state that they have and, and are not anxious that we should vastly reduce it. So we are engaged in a, in a battle of ideas, and we are at the moment on the losing side. We have an awfully long way to go. Now, I have a sense in which we have a great weakness in fighting this battle of ideas. It's as if we were a First World War army. We were advancing across a field, running at the enemy, and they've got machine guns and they're mowing us down. We don't actually have a very big army, and what few of us there are, we're getting completely demolished. And there are probably a number of weaknesses, but the weakness that I have in mind is that that relates to our history, the perception that most people have of our history, which is, in my view, completely wrong. Now, history is written by the victors. Caesar wrote an account of his own battles, and my goodness, he comes out well. The communists wrote their account of, of what life was like and how things were getting better in communist Russia and uh, communist China. And my goodness, everything was getting better the whole time. And, and if anything went wrong, it was because of internal enemies or external enemies. Anyway, it certainly wasn't the fault of the system. And that was regarded as a kind of history. And that was what people were told. Now, you may think, oh, well, Caesar and communists, that's a different ball game from advanced civilized, democratic countries. We don't censor history, but we do. I can give you one very, another example apart from the one I'm going to give you, which was, um, which I came across when I lived in, in Hong Kong in 1980-81 and, and then in Tokyo in 1982. It was a big diplomatic issue at the time between China and Japan. And it wasn't about borders, it wasn't about capitalism and communism, at least not centrally. It was about history. The two countries were angry with each other about history. And the cause of the anger was that China was deeply upset that Japanese history books did not include a description of the Nanking Massacre. The Nanking Massacre was a major, major event in the Far East. Thousands of women were raped. Schoolgirls were taken from schools and raped by soldiers. Fathers were made to rape their own daughters. Anybody who did not agree was bayoneted. This was a, an extraordinary, enormous atrocity, dwarfing most atrocities that would be more familiar in the West. We know very well about the Holocaust, but in the Far East, you could be, I mean, the total number of killed, I mean, nobody knows how many were killed. They, they weren't documenting it like the Holocaust, but. It's estimated that between 150,000 and 300,000 people were murdered in the Nanking Massacre. But if you were a conscientious, decent, well-educated, intelligent, young Japanese person, you would know nothing about this massacre. You would go and see a film, perhaps about, as I did in, by, by, by happenstance in Tokyo, about uh, German atrocities, and you would have no awareness that Japan had been, had been guilty of things that were as bad or worse. I mean, you, how do you compare these things? You can't. 
but certainly guilty of the most appalling acts, particularly in the Nanking massacre. They would have no idea, and it was quite extraordinary to stand in Tokyo knowing that the people around me didn't know what their fathers and uncles had done. Now, I'm putting to you that, obviously, the omission that I'm going to refer to is, in a sense, nothing like as grave, but it has enormous repercussions. I'm putting to you that the history of non-state welfare before the welfare state has been left out of our history books. There is a huge story here, an important story that would affect the way everybody feels and thinks about welfare that they don't know. I wouldn't blame any of you for not knowing anything about the non-state welfares of your countries because I, am, I would suspect that as in Britain, it is just not taught. You may come across it by accident, but you may be able to join things up. You may be, because you've been to this conference, you will know from um, the two gentlemen who spoke this morning about the friendly societies and other organizations which organizes non-state welfare. But you will be very, very unusual, a minority in the minority, in having any idea about this. It is a story not told, and it matters enormously because how can anybody be persuaded that you should reduce the size of the state if your, your impression is that there was no welfare before state welfare? that people were dying in the streets. How are you going to say, oh yes, it's a good idea to cut back the state, when you think, you sincerely believe, and have never been told otherwise, that without the state, there will be nothing. You are only going to persuade right-thinking, decent, intelligent people that they should reduce the size of the state if they know and believe that there has been a time when there was a lot of welfare provision that was very good in many ways and had very few of the damaging results which state welfare has, that this existed. And this is a reference point which makes it possible to argue that we should go back to a smaller state. Now, I've taken, um, I've looked at three books in uh, covering British history to try and substantiate my point that this is a, 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 a history that has been censored. Um, and do two of them in, in some detail. Uh, I'll just show them to you. This is called Britain 1783 to 1918. It is published by Collins, a mainstream British publisher. It is, it is for uh, A-level students. AS and A2, it's all got jargon now. It's a sort of substitution for quality is to give lots of technical names. But the, um, it's for A-level students, age 16, 17. This is the, the basis of their knowledge for what happened in Britain between those years. The other book, because I didn't want to make sure I wasn't taking one unusual and odd book, but no, this is the other one, An Introduction to 19th Century British History, which is published by the distinguished old firm of Hodder and Stoughton, and again, is, is meant, to be, it's meant to meet the gap, meet the needs of students as they work to bridge the gap between GCSE and A-level. So, uh, I've also got... Just for the popular side, British history for dummies. <laughs> and my goodness, you, yes, well, I'll come to that later. And I've also had a look, just in case I think I'm only looking at the, um, at the school books, at, at, a little, at some slightly higher level university texts. 
But I want to concentrate on these two ones. We're, we're talking about what the mass of the population think. In a way, it doesn't matter what academics think. What, well, it does, because they influence the others. But it's a trickle-down effect. So far, the trickle-down reaches these two books. And that's what history students are going to learn at GCSE and A-level. And it's all extraordinarily misleading. Let's take education. Now, the truth about education and its uh, non-state welfare provision is an extraordinary story. At the beginning of the, I think it's 1818, there was half a million children in education. 30 years later, no, 40 years later, the number had increased to two and a half million. That's an increase in child student numbers of five times. By any standards, that is an extraordinary story of development and growth in education. I mean, a, a just unprecedented and extraordinary growth in education done almost entirely without the state. There was a little bit of state involvement, but it was small compared to the, the private input. None of these were state schools. These were all created by charity, by commerce, by individuals just doing their thing. If this was known, this would be an important and interesting subject. It would have a, a chapter or a section in this, the extraordinary growth of education before state, the state education. But what do the textbooks say? This one. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Zilch. Rien. Nulla. <laughs> It does mention, I mean, maybe you say they didn't have room. They didn't want to do education. No, but no, yes, they do education. And they have room for the introduction of state education. They mention the Forster Act. And they try to explain why the Forster Act came. The Forster Act was introduced in 1870 because of the gaps in education. Now, you, may be, you will be left with an impression that obviously, if there were gaps that had to be filled, they must have been really important gaps. Must have been a serious lacuna in the, in the number of children being educated. He doesn't say how big the gaps are. Funny that. Doesn't have room for that little detail. Well, actually, the Newcastle Commission, which looked into it in 1861, reported, said this, worked out how many children were going to school for an average of between five and seven years. And they worked out what percentage it was. I wonder what percentage you might think. When I've asked audiences, perhaps, um, who have been living less of a clue than you, they thought, well, maybe 20%, 5%, 50%. Well, according to the Newcastle Commission, in, in 1861, before the state was involved, the number of, the proportion of children who had five to seven years of education was 95.5%. So the gaps we're referring to is 4.5%. And it also fails to mention, obviously didn't have room for this either, the huge rate of increase in which the numbers of children and the length of education they had was increasing during that century. No, there wasn't room for that. No, there were gaps. And that's all you're told. What about the, um, the intro? The intro to the 19th century British history, 1800 to 1914, produced by Hodder and Stoughton for GCSE and A-level students. What is there about this tremendous growth in private education? Mm, nothing. Nothing at all. 
So, moving on. Health. You'd think there'd be some knowledge that there was enormous non-state provision of health care because around London and the rest of Britain there are reminders all over the place. If you go to Hyde Park Corner, which is you know, a pretty central part of London, cars career around it, if you're a bicyclist I don't recommend it, you will see, if you look up, clearly uh, carved into the walls of a huge cream building, magnificent building, Georgian architecture, you'll see the word St. George's Hospital. If you notice this, you'll think that's a bit strange. Why does it say St. George's Hospital on the side? It's a hotel. What was it? Who created it? Well, I'm happy to tell you uh, when and how it was created. It was created in the 18th century. It was one of a, of a spurt of five hospitals, general hospitals in London that were created in the space of 30 years. At, in the 18th century and um, it became a very very important hospital to which a number of important uh, doctors went to in their time the ones who made significant breakthroughs in medical science but actually that's only the 18th century was nothing compared to the growth of hospitals in the 19th century in the 19th century the building was so gigantic and massive across all Britain that when they did a survey in 1906 of the provincial hospitals for infectious diseases, of which there were 550, they calculated how many had been built in the previous 66 years, since 1850. And it was 400. 400 hospitals out of 550 were built in that fantastic time of hospital growth. Hospitals were being built on a fantastic scale. So... What, um, oh, I might have mentioned another thing about the GP services. GP services were available to many people, uh, as we might have heard to some extent this morning, through their friendly societies, because people, many friendly societies would give, as part of their service offering, the right to go and see a general practitioner, a doctor, or a regular doctor. Uh, in addition to that, you could subscribe to your doctor, you could make a regular payment, and in addition to that, if you were really poor, a study of uh, doctors shows that one in five ordinary doctors, gave, uh, one of five consultations with ordinary doctors was actually free. And what is also forgotten in the popular consciousness is that consultants, the very top people in hospitals, who are now in Britain very hard to reach, and indeed somewhat the qualifications of being a top person have somewhat gone down in order to make the numbers seem bigger, but at the time the very top people in medicine would, as a matter of routine, give their uh, half a day free to charitable hospitals. And I interviewed the daughter of one of them, who could still remember the time when her father would spend the morning in the charitable hospital, so-called voluntary hospital, but I'm calling them charitable because many people won't know the old term of voluntary is not well known now. They were essentially charitable hospitals. They would spend the, he would spend the morning in the charitable hospital, and in the afternoon he would spend three hours taking fee-paying patients. Obviously, he would see the fee-paying patients for longer, but he would see people for free for the morning. No argument as there is now in the British NHS about what his contract would be, how much he would get paid. In those days, being a doctor was seen to be, as well as being, a vocation which people entered because they wanted to make people better. Doctors were highly respected. They were people who were admired because they gave their lives for, for curing people and often took no money. 
It was not seen as it is now as something you want your son-in-law to do. <laughs> a, means, a means to a good income. So, we have this huge history which led to Britain being perhaps certainly one of the leading providers of healthcare in the world, perhaps the greatest in, in providing medical advances. Probably some here would dispute that, but I do go through some of the greatest ones and certainly the greatest medical advance that uh, Britain produced in the 20th century was the discovery and development of penicillin, which took place in St. Mary's Hospital, a charitable hospital, and then in, in Oxford University, where it was entirely paid for by donations from various people, ending with a donation from the Rockefeller Foundation. The British government gave 25 pounds. <laughs> no mention of that in either of these books, I can assure you. So, what is... Britain, 1783 to 1918, say about the fantastic growth of hospital provision in the 19th century? Nothing. Nothing at all. It says when explaining why it was that, um, well, no, it says about the Second World War. Second World War comes along, and so here we have the first and only comment about non-state hospitals. It says that as a result of the war, these private and local authority and charitable hospitals were not adequate to wartime conditions. That's it. They were not adequate. We don't know which country had an adequate system for dealing with mass bombing, but we are left to assume that this was, you know, this was totally inadequate and shoddy, and thereby, by implication, we must assume that, therefore, it was perfectly sensible and normal and natural for, for Nye Bevan to nationalise all hospitals immediately after the war. But that's it. There is no reference to the growth, no, no attempt to describe how good the care was, no attempt to say that it's any better as a result of the creation of the NHS. The um, intro, the other one, this one, also has nothing. And if you're wondering why, there's one question I posed at the, begin at the beginning on the health section, why, what happened to the, um, the St. George's Hospital? Why is it now a, a luxury hotel called the Lanesborough Hotel? It's because the, the government closed it down. Well, no, it doesn't, doesn't say it closed it down. Let's get the right spin on this. It merged it. It took 10 hospitals merged to make the new St. George's Hospital, which is in Tooting. Ten hospitals. The NHS needs a lot of takes a lot of pre-welfare state hospitals to make one welfare state hospital. The, I mean, the simple history, and of course there are medical reasons for this, which I won't go into, but it is simply a fact that the pre-welfare state built hospitals, the welfare state closed them. It's simply a fact. Yes, they are bigger, but the number of beds is hundreds of thousands lower. Medicine has changed, it's true. But at that time, in 1948, hospitals were looking after far more people than they are today because many diseases which are easily curable today and stays in hospital were longer. Conditions were actually much more difficult, in some senses much more expensive, before state, state hospitals took over. And so the provision was enormous, far bigger than it is today. What about welfare benefits? Now, the, we've had some... You've heard something today about the friendly societies already. I would suggest there are four kinds of, of welfare provision for people who have worried about losing their job or who may become sick, which is a, basically the social security that I'm referring to. 
Firstly, people can save for themselves. And my goodness, they had an incentive to save. So saving increased enormously to this, during the second half of the 19th century for obvious reasons. As people became richer, they knew it made sense to save in a way that they are now discouraged from saving by means-tested benefits. Saving was growing very fast, and if we see the example of Hong Kong, where benefits are very minor, we can see that that is a heavily saving society, and Britain would be a saving society today if it was not for, for the, the intervention. Then there are the friendly societies. Now, the scale of this is important. It's not just that they existed and they were good for building social capital, which is true. The fact is they, they were enormous, and they are completely left out of history. Six million out of seven million industrial workers were members of friendly societies. And that doesn't count members of trade unions, which often offered similar benefits to the friendly societies. So this provision by friendly societies was gigantic. They were widely respected. Every politician at the time, the Liberal government at that time, and later Beveridge, when he produced his report, said how much they respected friendly societies and didn't want to discourage them. But of course, the welfare state completely destroyed and crowded them out. Then there was friends and family, which actually were part of the welfare system of that time. And if you, in fact, if you look at almost any literature of the past, you will come again and again. Once you become attuned to it, you will notice family and friends supporting each other. Even in comedies like A School for Scandal or dramas like Tess of the D'Urbervilles, you will come across friends and family supporting each other. That's when the self has failed. That's when the mutual assistance has failed. When insurance has failed, then they might... Take, bite, the, bite the bullet and, and ask a family member or a friend. Nobody likes to do that, but because there's a huge, I mean, inbuilt in that is a, a huge desire that you don't want to do it because it's embarrassing, you make an obligation. People are very reluctant, so they try their damnedest to get by by themselves, which I would suggest is a good thing. But supposing that fails too, your friends disown you, your family doesn't want to know you. Okay, what, what's next? Then there's charity. Now, people think they are charitable today. In Britain, BBC television persists in giving people the illusion that they are very generous. It has a, has a child charity once a year and tells them throughout the day how generous and wonderful they are. British people give less than 1% of their income to, to charity. Victorian middle-class people, as polled by the Times in 1885, gave 10%. The idea that we are charitable people today is absurd. The welfare state has crowded out and destroyed charity. But charity at that time was, charity in Britain was just for one charity, the King's Fund, which supported charitable hospitals, supported and led by the King, hence the name. They gave money to charitable hospitals, which they thought were the best charitable hospitals. This was, this King's Fund had the income of a kingdom. It was, it was, it was like some countries in Europe had budgets less than the King's Fund. That's how big charity was. But also it gave, gave homes, and it gave uh, housing, it gave help to the poor, it gave food. There were so many charities doing so many things, so many famous ones were started at that time, like Dr. Banana, Dr. Bernardo's, that they were so much falling over each other that you could have two or three charities trying to give to the same person. And they had to actually create an organization whose main job was to try and stop multiple giving to needy cases. That was the extent of charity. Now. Let me turn to this increasingly unreliable source. In this one, friendly societies are mentioned. Yes, they're mentioned. 
And indeed, what they are is described, but there is nothing about the scale of them. In this one, there is nothing on them, but there are two great sentences, nothing directly on them, but there are two great sentences when the National Insurance Act was introduced in 1911 that gives, this is, if there's an IBL prize for the, for the most state-skeptical sentences in these two books, it would go to these two sentences. And believe me, these are unusual and uh, very special, so I'm going to just make sure I get them right. Glory in these, because they won't hear many more of them. This, is, this was the sentence. The fact was that many working-class people had a well-founded distrust of state intervention, which they saw as patronizing and disruptive. Their practical experience of officialdom in such developments as the workhouse, compulsory education, slum clearance, and vaccination had seldom been a happy one. Well, enjoy that bit of skepticism while you may, because he goes on to say initially the working class were against it, uh, and then he goes on to say that actually the liberal reforms improve the, the living and working conditions of many people. So he, I'm afraid this is a flash in the pan and a bit of a gesture. Let me take housing. This is the last, the last of the major areas I'll deal with. There was astonishing building in the 19th century. Each of these ones I say astonishing, but each one is astonishing. The population of Britain rose gigantically during the course of the 19th century. It's like boom like you see outside cities in Brazil in the, in the, in the current, uh, current times. Um, and the extraordinary thing about it is having read one specialist book on housing, a little detail that most people would overlook, is that the density of housing, that's to say the number of people per square foot, went down during this period. It's an astonishing achievement. The building that just spread across London. I mean, the house in which I live in Kensington was a field. At the beginning of the 19th century, it was covered in houses by the end of it. And in fact, the, if you look at maps of London, it just went vroomph out like that. That's at a fantastic rate. None of this was created by the state. All of it was created by private enterprise. And to some extent, the charitable uh, housing developments of people like Octavia Hill and the Roundtree Trust. Not the, no, there's another... There's another big one. It's an American who came over. I can't remember. His name escapes me now. But all around Westminster, there are houses that uh, he, he paid for and which tended to be people lived there at low incomes, but they were asked about their incomes. They were visited regularly. And this is an important element of good delivery of welfare as opposed to the bad welfare delivery which the state tends to deliver. Um, so what is it? Britain? Octavia Hill is mentioned. Well done. But that's it. And then at the end, there is this damning remark. And this really shows the author of this book in his true colors, because finally the gloves come off. Not for the first time, proper solutions seem to be beyond the Victorians. Proper solutions were beyond the Victorians. And he says, only in 1919 did the government actually get round to building houses. The implication being that only when the government took over was any decent amount of housing provision done. No evidence is given for this at all. When you're producing a controversial point of view, of course, you have to produce lots of evidence and footnotes. Everybody wants to know, how can you, how can you say that? But when you're in the mainstream, then you can get away with anything. 
Just trotted out, oh, not until good old 1919, along came the state and saved the day. No evidence at all. No numbers of buildings made. Actually, the, the experience after the Second World War was completely the reverse. The state more or less monopolized building of houses after the Second World War, and the numbers slumped. It was much worse than after the First World War, when private provision had not been destroyed in the same way as it was after the Second. Fewer houses were built after the Second World War than after the First World War. Numbers are completely the opposite of what this uh, man suggests. And what about the, um, what does the introduction to 19th century British history say about the fantastic growth in housing in the 19th century? Nothing. Okay. The, mainly I've been dealing with omission, because this, what I've been talking about and what I think is important is the omission of the story of non-state welfare. But it goes beyond that. As we see, I saw a hint of in that, in that book called Britain. Um, it it's, goes beyond just saying not mentioning it. It goes on to suggest that everything that the state did was a bit of progress. Everything that was in its way was in the way of the state taking over was a, was a lobby group, an interest group. The smear that takes place over every resistance to state taking over comes through in this, and in the academic work, which I was referring to, the Cambridge Social History. He says, at last, you know, there was, there was a legislation in 1870 on education. At last, the obstacles were removed. Uh, and he talks about the religious problem which there was in, in producing state education. It was, at last, it was overcome uh, by the, it was, the Gordian knot was cut. And he refers to, we were behind um, uh, Euro other European countries in producing state education. The implication being that other countries were advanced because they had state education, whereas we didn't. No evidence, of course, for that either. The most outrageous bit of... Um, of propaganda, of outright prejudice, of completely misleading statements comes in this authoritative book. This is the book, though, of course, we must take it seriously. It's like the government takes the Sun newspaper seriously because most people read the Sun. They do not read the Times, so you need to take these seriously. This is a book that is on sale now in Waterstones and it will be influencing hundreds, if not thousands, well, thousands, presumably, if not tens of thousands of people. The welfare state introduction in uh, well, not the introduction, the development of the welfare state, because the welfare state actually started a long time before, but the, the vast, vast development of the welfare state under the Attlee government in between 1945 and 1950. Here we're dealing with poverty and social security. This is the statement that's in this book. Attlee said there'd be no return to the bad old days where if you were too poor, you just starved. End quote. I mean, it's just outrageous. It is a complete travesty of the truth. And it's as if, you know, paradise was introduced in 1945-50 and all before it was misery. I mean, this is a fantasy, a farrago. And the only way in which people are beginning to doubt it is because more and more people see that state welfare provision, particularly in Britain, the medical provision, is so far below par. And more and more, actually, you do see the beginnings of charity coming back on a, I don't know what's, whether it's on a sufficient scale, but certainly in education. I have met poor black 
lone parents living on council estates who take their children out of a state school and put it into a private school, a cheap private school, usually a religious private school, because they're the only people who will work for that little money, in order to stop their children becoming criminals and getting girls pregnant and ending up in prison. I talked to a 19-year-old boy, and he said, if I hadn't been moved from my comprehensive in Westminster, right near Parliament, I would now be in prison after fathering several girls, several children, by different women. And that is how he saw his future. And he was rescued by a re-emergence of cheap private schooling. Well, if people believe, though, that the bad old days were when people starved to death, if they believe that, how are you going to persuade them to cut back the state? If they believe that people, the poor, went untreated, how are you going to say the NHS should be abolished? If, if they believe that the, the houses can only be built through council housing and, and the private housing never has a role in providing housing for the poor as well as the rich, why should they support a smaller state? It is absolutely vital in my view. It's an essential building block of any attempt to reduce the size of the state that the history of non-state welfare should be known and understood. And I hope that among you, there are people who are going to be historians and are going to set the, write the textbooks of the future and are going to set the exams and mark the exams of the future. Because if history is not rewritten, we don't have a chance. We need to have the truth. We need to be able to fight without crossing a plane where we're machine gunned down. We need to change the mainstream, to divert the mainstream, to understand these facts about the past. And only if we divert the mainstream do we have a chance to make our separate countries a better place and a less, stated, less statist place. Thank you very much.